Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit. A podcast that takes a closer look at the IT industry, both the good and the bad. My name is Cameron Plato. And I'm Brian Long. And I'm Brian Link. On today's episode, it is my distinct pleasure to have Andrew Blom as our guest. Andrew is a journalist and book author who has spent the past 15 years or so writing about a variety of topics, including technology infrastructure. His 2012 book called Tubes is the definitive work on the physical internet, the tubes that carry the data. It may not sound like it, but it's a beautiful and informative book, and we use it as the jumping off point for a wide-ranging conversation about data privacy, security, and how things have changed in the past nine years, which is like a century in internet time. I have to confess that Tubes is my favorite book about the internet, so I couldn't be more excited to get the chance to talk with Andrew about it. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Andrew, welcome to Cut the Shit. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brian. Everybody laughs at the name if you're not familiar with it. This is the, you know, this is what we came up with. So, you know, it is what it is. So, uh, maybe gives you some idea of what you've gotten yourself into. I didn't know how the S was pronounced, but now, now I hear it. So, yeah, it's good. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, for for the benefit of, I mean, I know a little bit about your background. Uh, but for the benefit of the listeners, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of background about yourself? Tell us sort of where you grew up, education, and kind of how you got into being a writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been a sort of journalist now for, uh, it's, it's kind of my 20 year anniversary of my first big piece. Um, and uh, I, I grew up in, in New York City, uh, left for about 10 years, but I've been back here now for about 15 years. Um, went to school in Massachusetts at Amherst College, studied literature, not technology at all, but I was always a geek. Um, you know, my dad brought me to Macworld in, you know, 1986 or whatever it oh, was. Wow. Um, yeah, you know, original, you know, grew up with the TI-994A and, and a, you know, Mac Plus and, and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, was just always loved this kind of geeky idea that we'd have these, you know, crazy maps and GPS and two-way radios and all the things that we now kind of live with all the time. Um, so I think kind of way back, even um, even pretty early on, before I was writing more about technology, but was writing more about architecture and about buildings, I um, kind of began to see what was coming down the pike in a way that's kind of come true, you know, more than I ever could have dreamed. So that's, that's been exciting. So. so, so you mentioned architecture, and obviously in the, in the prologue to Tubes, you talk some about that um, in terms of being sort of initial writing. Uh, writing area of focus. How did you get into that? How, how did you sort of transition into that as a, as an area of focus? Yeah, I mean, I I thought going around looking at buildings uh, seemed like kind of a cool job, and I thought that sort of being an architecture critic or an architecture writer would be a way to do that. Um, and particularly in the kind of '90s and early 2000s, um, it was there was just a ton of ton of writing about buildings going on. It's a kind of pretty exciting moment in architecture when you had the kind of birth of sort of star architecture and all these, you know, sort of, you know, real kind of monumental, iconic buildings. Um, and uh, and that, um, it was just kind of my sort of first passion with this. Uh, I thought for a while I might be a poetry critic, but that seemed kind of crazy. A building critic seemed a little bit more, <laughs> seemed a little bit more relevant. Um, but what, um, but I also kind of always loved sort of, you know, big systems, you know, subways and power lines and things like that. So I actually did a, I was kind of a failed graduate student, but I did do a, a one-year degree in, in human geography, um, where I studied kind of um, sort of urban planning and sort of place philosophy kind of weirdly. And I finished the year and they told me that if I wanted to, I could go on and get my PhD, but they didn't recommend it. So I kind of <laughs> took that seriously. <laughs> you, you took that as, a, as, a, as, a, as words of wisdom? 
Yeah, I immediately turned around and asked one of my classmates if I could turn her, you know, eight page master's thesis into a 800 word article for a magazine. And she said, OK, yeah, whatever. Um, and kind of never, never looked back. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Excellent. Um, what, as you kind of think back over your career, it sounds like you've written about a variety of different things. What, what would you say are your you know, top two or three sort of favorite, either favorite articles or favorite topics that you've, that you've dealt with um, over that time span? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of fickle about that. So it's, I, it's always the kind of most recent ones that I, you know, that are, that'll end up being the favorites. Um, let's see, I think, well, let me go back in time first. I think um, I wrote a piece uh, for Wired, uh, it must have been 2007 or 2008, about the redesign of the airspace over New York, like the air traffic control. And I remember, um, you know, and, and that was just kind of this perfect, perfect combination of you know, thinking about these systems and patterns and maps um, with planes, and uh, I got to spend a day at the at the in the tower at Newark Airport. And I remember uh, I remember kind of standing next to the controller, you know, like land, landing planes, being like, "This is exactly like this is this is why I wanted to become a journalist." You know, forget going to look at like art museums. You know, this was you know being in the you know looking at you know being inside the the, the control tower at Newark was like a was like a high point. So that was one. Um, one piece I just finished about nuclear power, about nuclear microreactors that was published in Time uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, that was pretty exciting. Um, you know, nuclear power has just got an incredibly complicated dynamic right now between, uh, you know, being a real possible sort of saving grace for, for low carbon power, um, yeah. but with a lot of complexity, a lot of baggage, a lot of cost. Um, and looking at this one startup in particular that's kind of sort of recasting it in a pretty interesting way was exciting. Um, and then I third, I'd have to go with with a uh, with a story that became Tubes, um, and that was wild because I pitched my editor at Wired and said, you know, we forgot about the wires. You know, we got to do something about the wires. And this was uh, 2008, uh, 2009, and um, he immediately ran around the office and said, oh, I just got this great idea. We got to you know, got to write. We we totally forgot about data centers, and, and nobody was writing about data centers or anything at the time. It just wasn't on the radar. Um, and um, he immediately got a green light for the story, but they decided it was going to be a photo essay uh, and it was going to be 500 words of writing and six photographs. Uh, and so that's when I decided to. Turn so pictures of wires uh, or data centers, which are I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of data centers. They're super exciting. I can imagine why they would want to have pictures. It was um, it was the photo essay that came out was pretty great. It was pretty fun. Uh, a great photographer, a guy who who somehow they hired a guy to do it, who um, uh, who had, whose sort of main claim to fame was um, some of the original Calvin Klein underwear ads, um, but they had him sort of go around and shoot internet infrastructure instead. Um, <laughs> but, I don't know. I, I don't know what that feels like on the uh, on the photographic career ladder, um, going from Calvin Klein models to to switches and routers. I, I'm not sure. That, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he hired like a, <laughs> hired like a cherry picker to like get him up above a cable landing beach or something like that. He managed to, to get some out of it. So he made he made he made uh, lemons out of lemonade or lemonade out of lemons, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got gotcha. you. Very cool. Well, um, I think that's probably a good transition point to talk some about tubes. Um, obviously, that's the you know the the primary um, reason I reached out to you um, because this book to me is is a really interesting book and a super important one if you're someone who works in the internet space. Um, and to your point, um, forgetting about the wires, you know, we, we live in a world where it's sort of hard to forget about the wires, at least at the office when we think about the job that we do, because we do a good bit of networking, um, you know, managed services and network consulting. 
but everywhere else there there's almost no there's still no really talk or awareness of the wires i was talking to my kids who are 23 and 21 about this and they sort of laughed and they said that doesn't sound like a very interesting story and i and i you know i immediately went into sales mode and was like no no you don't understand you got to read this book um and and I, I can't I can't decide if I'm right about that or if it's just an old guy trying to get somebody to understand something that is completely so far out of context um, that that it's that it's hard to reach. But I think the book does a great job of that. But anyway, to get it started, you know, I'll start with kind of where you started. You know, with the former senior senator from the great state of Alaska, Ted Stevens, um, a, a real internet guru um, to to anybody who remembers him. Not not exactly. Not that Congress is known for its technical, uh, you know, know-how, but nevertheless, he was probably maybe even further non-technical than most. But he was pretty prescient, in, you know, in 2006 when he made that little speech in the Senate committee um, about talking about Netflix and net neutrality and said, you know, the Internet he compared the Internet or described the Internet as a series of tubes. Um, and he was roundly mocked for this. Um, but if you think about it, I mean, I think you make the argument, and I think it's a successful argument, that he was 100% right about that, at least in, in its, you know, at, at a very sort of visceral level. Um, so, you know, how, do you, how did you feel finding yourself being a tech writer defending Ted Stevens' honor in this particular book? Uh, I mean, it was, yeah, there, there was a, always the kind of, the joke was always at hand. I mean, we kind of knew right from the beginning that this book was going to be called Tubes, kind of in tribute to that, to what had, what was kind of one of the original memes. Yep, for sure. It was a meme before there was such a thing, right? It was a meme. It was absolutely a meme before there were memes. Um, and um, and when you tell people, when you ask people what the internet was, and again, you know, things have changed pretty dramatically. Before, you know, before we had iCloud, you know, before before even you know the 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 cloud was existed um, hardly as a marketing term. Um, you know, when you said, "Oh, I'm going to look at what the internet actually is." That at least in 2009, 2010, almost everybody would immediately say, "Oh, oh yeah, like a series of tubes," and that's you know that that was kind of right at hand um, all the way there. Um, but it was also you know the other piece of it, and this speaks to kind of Ted Stevens' sort of ignorance with it, or all of our ignorance with it, is that none of the people in the industry had you know the people who ran data centers, the telecom folks, and the undersea cable folks, they just they hadn't nobody had paid any attention to them. Um, you know, so as a journalist kind of calling them up and saying, uh, you know, what's, um, you know, what, you know, can I, can I hear more about what you're doing? Um, they, they hadn't gotten any of these calls. I mean, I remember I went to um, Nanog, which is, you know, I write about in the book, the North yep. American Operators Group. They had no, they never had a journalist come to the conference. They had no. They probably, did they have any PR people or anything? They probably didn't have a clue, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, they never, they just, they didn't do it. So, you know, and, and they just, they're like, okay, if you want to come see what we're doing, sure, why not? Um, there was just no, there was no sense that this was, this was interesting, you know, to, to a broader audience. It was also a moment where things were just getting, you know, where the Googles and, uh, and barely Facebooks, primarily, primarily, it was really Google by that time, but they were really just beginning to kind of um, direct, uh, connect directly to other networks and to cable operators and the whole idea of peering um, that's been so important for, for, for the growth, for the growth of the cloud barely existed and barely existed as a kind of political or economic uh, discussion at all. Um, so there's just so much that hadn't, you know, that hadn't, you know, that, that was, that was, that was kind of nascent. That's, that's grown up incredibly over the last 10, 12 years. So. Yeah. And so we'll, I'm going to, I want to kind of step back in time a little bit with you. I know the book is eight years old now, so I'm going to have to you know, ask you to sort of dig back a little, because I want to talk some about the reception or sort of the, you know, sort of how people 
dealt with it and experienced it at the time. And then we'll, we'll come forward to today and talk about sort of where we are and, and maybe try to look retrospectively and see, do some comparisons and think about it. But, you know, when, when you, you think back to that, you know, published in 2013. So, you know, you probably did some publicity and some other things on the back end of that. What, what most surprised you about some of the initial reactions to the book, both maybe negative and positive? Yeah. Yeah. Actually 2012 was the hardcover. So I'm June to May, May 2012. Um, I mean, I think that the, there wasn't the, when you told there, there wasn't the suspicion about, um, about big tech as there is now. Um, and big tech also didn't do as much for us as it does now, you know, that was kind of double-edged, um, you know, so there just, we, you know, we didn't, you know, the Netflix streaming was still pretty new. I think there was barely Amazon streaming, you know, they're just all of these things. Um, you know, the the iPhone existed, but it wasn't the other. You know, it's just really kind of you know, Uber had. Um, my first Uber ride was fall two thousand twelve, I think, in San Francisco. You know, just all of these things. Uh, ordering ordering just dinner starting. on your phone. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and not even starting really. And so this whole idea of um, you know, of a uh, of the of the kind of way in which the way in which technology uh, and the way in which our devices are and the way in which the internet is sort of so much woven into our lives. I mean, even, you know, don't even, even before you get to the pandemic, um, just didn't exist. And so I remember kind of saying, um, you know, as a kind of um, a refrain with a lot of the press, you know, it's like, well, okay, well why, why do we care? Why, should, why does it matter? And it was always, it was always this kind of more abstract, like we should know where our internet comes from, like we should know where our email lives, like we should know, you know, how these companies work. Um, and that, that was kind of a, it seemed a bit, um, you know, a bit chicken little that I was so concerned about what the, about what was, you know, who, who was running these places and how they worked and what was behind them. And the, the, the risk of control seemed kind of far off because that just wasn't the world we lived in, um, in the way that we now um, you know, talk about uh, Facebook or YouTube or or or, um, or Amazon's con- control over different marketplaces and different different public conversations. Um, but what was clear was uh, a lot of question about privacy and a lot of question about your own personal control over your data. Um, and so I, you know, I, I kind of watched with a lot of interest over the last year, uh, more than that, few years, um, as uh, big tech has kind of come under greater scrutiny. And as we've kind of become more familiar with the, you know, with 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 the the, the power that they hold, um, to you know it, it, that like you know these were these were questions that that were framed very differently in 2012. Uh, I mean, the question was really about privacy. You know, we had you know we, there was just it was really about you know what what is what does Facebook know about you, um, right. rather than what sort of a traditional what we what I would have think of as sort of the traditional libertarian concern around privacy, right, and just extended into the internet realm or the big tech realm at that point yeah and not you know nowhere near you know we kind of give you know that's that's sort of that's sort of that ship has sailed you know we don't you know we don't we don't really talk about uh the extent to which um that privacy has taken over certainly the political lines have been totally scrambled in that conversation absolutely absolutely so you know when you think about those reactions did you get different reactions from sort of non-technical people versus technical people i'm curious about that distinction yeah, well, technical people, you know, are always eager to tell you how you're wrong. So that's the sure, sure. I, yeah, I read the comments on Amazon, and of course, all of the critics, all of the critical ones, were clearly, you know, nerds who were, uh, you know, upset about your lack of precision of describing exactly the way the internet works. Of course, of course, according to the way according to the way they think it 
should be described. So whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So that, so I, and I was pleased a lot of the, the, the technical people who actually were inside these communities, Nanog and Ocean Cables were very positive. We're super excited that I had kind of illuminated the work that they were doing. Um, and, uh, well, you know, some, well, there, well, yeah. So, you know, that there, there were others who, yes, you know, in classic kind of nerd fashion, uh, you know, were, were, um, frustrated by, by either my imprecision or my sort of, you know, attempt at poetic musings about, uh, you know, about, right. about how the internet works. Um, but it really, I mean, it's just, it's, it was, it was a moment where there, you know, we, there was no popular cultural image about inside of a data center, you know, just there, these, you know, Google had never shown a picture of the inside of their data centers. And actually they, the first time they released pictures of the inside of their data centers was in the, the fall after tubes came out. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think it was a project that was basically commissioned around a lot of, you know, my kind of poking at them uh, for being so secretive and, you know, skewering them there. I mean, they are kind of the the, the villains in the book, not to give away the end, um, because of the way that they, uh, the way that they um, refuse to engage with a conversation about the public needing to understand how their systems work. That That's changed 100%. I mean, they're still very secretive in some ways. Um, but it's, you know, just a given that if you're going to sell cloud services, you show people what your cloud look physically looks like, you know, what the inside of your data center looks like. Um, so the, I mean, the conversation has changed incredibly dramatically. I, and we, we haven't talked about, about Snowden as well. I mean, Snowden, the, 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 the first Snowden revelations, I think we're, we're 2013, um, a, a year later. Um, and that, that again, scrambles the entire conversation about what the the dynamic is between our own liberties um the power of big tech and how that fits in with the physical infrastructure yeah and even that one to me is it's interesting when i think about that i'm uh, i'm a, i'm a libertarian by sort of uh inclination um you know i'm in a lot of ways very lean in that direction and and during the snowden you know the snowden revelations and those discussions that followed right the the big concern that I remember, at least the way I thought it, I found it to be positioned, was sort of the, the the cooperation between government and these private companies to you know to to sort of um, help the government you know continue to sort of invade our privacy, if you will. Right? That's a fairly negative uh, spin. Others may see it differently in the F, you know in terms of anti-terrorism, whatever. But this idea of being able to to soak up all this information really required cooperation between government and big tech in a way that a lot of people didn't really, they didn't think that was actually going on, right? And now I think about the discussion, it's almost the opposite of that, right? Like it's, it's almost like the government is somehow helpless at the feet of these larger, uh, of these larger entities. Whereas at that point, it still felt like the NSA was way more powerful than Facebook or Google at that particular point. Now, maybe that was you know, maybe that was my own take on it, but I just was, it seems to sort of reflect, I think what you were describing in terms of the scrambling. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when in the, before the Snowden revelations, I remember being very suspicious about the sort of, you know, what seemed to be conspiracy theory about NSA uh, snooping in some ways, because I had seen how the internet worked and it, it seemed implausible that there was a sort of shadow internet that the NSA was running. Um, but the but what I hadn't counted on was the excess, you know, was the 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 sort of basic just sort of backdoor um, that the NSA had asked. Yeah, they were let in, right? I mean, to your point, it'd be, it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do it without help, right? I mean, that was that was where your skepticism was coming from, which was well founded, right? Right, right. And and for me, it pointed to another big theme, which is that you know we we now don't really have an internet; we have a supernet. You know, we have an internet that's essentially dominated by you know by Facebook. 
Google, Amazon, uh, Apple to a lesser extent. Uh, I mean, the, the way in which most, the, the vast majority of internet traffic really is sort of Facebook and Google or YouTube and Instagram built into that. I think where it's up to something like two thirds of, of telecom traffic is the content providers globally. I mean, just astounding numbers. So this initial notion of the internet is a, especially the libertarian idea of the internet as a network of networks where no one is in control um, is now completely false um, because of the growth um, of of these particular giants. It's 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 the it's the idea of the network effect taken to its logical conclusion, right? And and this is what has happened in that sense, right? And I mean, no one has dictated it. It it wasn't it wasn't you know uh, it wasn't top down control in that sense. But nevertheless, in terms of aggregations of of I I, I hesitate to use the word power, uh, but there is power in that, right? I mean, you know. Even in the libertarian circles in which I've I've listened to people talk, you know, they're like, well, people just don't have to go on Facebook. And, and that's 100% true. You don't have to go on Facebook. You don't have to use any of the big guys if you don't want to. But so many people do that by its own, you know, sort of self-organized structure, right? It's still an aggregation of power in that sense, which is, I think, problematic. And realistically, almost none of our, you know, sort of existing tools for dealing with that fit the mold. I mean, I think that's part of, I mean, forget about whether it's, whether we're being intelligent about how we think about the problem, because we're probably not. But the reality is, even if we were, it's not one that's easily solved um, in, in this context. And my, I mean, my premise in 2009 and my premise now is that you just, you need, you need to shine the light in. I mean, you just, you need to know what these networks are made of. You need to know uh, sort of how they fit together and who runs them and who operates them and, and sort of what, what the kind of ownership, you know, what, what the ownership structure is and all of these things. Um, and 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 to be sort of basically held accountable, um, and sort of basic knowledge that helps us and helps us helps us make these decisions. And it's been actually quite quite a remarkable season for that. Even now, I, I don't have it on my desk, but you know the current current issue of Time is, has um, has uh, has um, Hoaxin, the the Facebook whistleblower, um, you know sort of you know sort of classic whistleblower profile um, of being inside and seeing stuff that she didn't think was right and and. You know, and, and exposing all these documents um, then for discussion, um, which is another tool to hold hold power to account. Um, but it's quite striking to me that um, you know, in, in 2009 or 2010, when I visited, wanted to go visit Google's data center, they said, "What do you What do you want to see? These are trade secrets. You know, what what what, what do you have to gain from this?" You know, I was saying, "Well, what you know, the first step in sort of understanding the kind of control that you're amassing and the way in which you." essentially operate all the communications you know upon which we now rely we're, we're using microsoft teams today but you know <laughs> you know that could, could have made a different choice um you know is the first step in that is just knowing where this data is and that was that was not a conversation that was happening then you you could not find the locations of google's data centers um in 2009 or up until really 2012. um they they did not they you know the the when i visited the dallas the original google data center um there was not a sign out on the on the facility um, that's hard to imagine now, um, but it was absolutely the case. Um, and um, so we, you know, even, you know, even with um, that increased transparency, we're still in a position um, of just incredible, um, sort of incredible, uh, perhaps um, unchecked power of the large technology corporations. Well, also, I think it's important acknowledging how successful and how 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 much they they bring to our lives. I mean, that you know, right. I, I I used to think it was a I used to think it was an, uh, a, 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 a naive choice on the part of consumers that if we knew what they knew about us, then then we wouldn't do it. Um, but I actually have come to learn that that's yeah, people. It's actually people are quite happy to to make that fair that that exchange of of, of personal data for services they offer. Some of which are very good. You know? 
I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, th- these are all, cause these, what we're talking about are mostly almost all free services, right? In the sense that no one is quote unquote paying for them, right? There's no, there are no tolls uh, on that particular road. So we, we talked, we've, we, we've talked specifically and talked around them to a bit, but it did, you know, when you think back to the book, uh, you know, in the book, you talk a good bit about security concerns, but a lot of it was around the security of the physical places themselves, right? The exchanges, the pops, the data centers, you know, and at least implicitly and in some places explicitly thinking about, you know, there's inherent vulnerability in these aggregations of particularly at the exchange level, right? Where you've got all this peering and all this cross connecting going on, right? And there's there's a bunch of value in everything being together, but it also mitigates against the idea of the distributed nature of the internet, right? In that sense, um, it still was distributed, meaning everybody around the world could access it, but the way it was actually delivered wasn't really distributed in that sense because it had to pass through these, you know, these really these sort of aggregations of connections, right? So when you when you think about that, and you know, how do you make sense of that in the context of you know, what we're seeing around security breaches now and really it, it really hasn't played out that that physical vulnerability has been the, the the way people have caused problems right it has been mostly truly internet based as opposed to physical uh, you know physical um, penetration based I, I'm, is that surprising to you what, what what are your thoughts about that yeah I mean it, it wasn't it never well there was there were there were moments where people expressed concern that I was revealing locations, um, but those moments, but that ship had already sailed. Even at the time I was doing that, um, I, I I remember having a conversation with the the um, I think I, I write about this in the book, but but with the head of security at a major telecom who said we were happy for you to write about our our facilities, just don't say where they are. But this was in the relatively early days of Google Maps, and he hadn't realized that sort of Google Maps knew where he was. You know, if you put right. put his name of his facility and the land, you know, land you know, there the, was there was flag land right in the middle. And of course, we take that for granted now. It's almost impossible to keep any of this location secret. Um, but yeah, no, I think I mean I think that the redundancy and the the aggressiveness of any kind of physical attack um, and the kind of clarity of you know the, the difficulty of getting away with it compared to cyber attacks. Um, have all kind of worked in the internet's favor. Um, you know, there have been there's st- there are still outages that have physical causes. Um, that that has that has happened. Um, you know, with 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 a lot of regularity, but there haven't been really the kind of catastrophic um, physical attacks that have caused that have caused real consequences before. Um, and I, I think that's that's less a matter of luck and uh, and more a matter of it just not being the path of least resistance for causing trouble. Um, that said, I did I did have the opportunity a couple of years after Tubes came out, maybe a little bit 2014, 2015, but I visited the Department of Homeland Security, kind of like critical infrastructure sort of command center. Um, and as late as that, 2014, 2015, they their telecommunications sort of overwatch was really based on the traditional telecoms. They had here's 18, they were plugged into AT&T's network or they were plugged into the Verizon's network or whatever, and they had sort of direct lines into all the control rooms there and sort of we're, we're kind of keeping an eye on things from in that sense. And I said, what about Google's network or Facebook's network? Um, and they said, oh, they won't they won't let us in. We don't have any transparency into that. Um, so essentially, so even into the mid 2010s, there there wasn't the recognition at the at the Homeland Security level that uh, that Google's network was a major communications conduit um, and Google liked it that way. Yeah, um, sure. 
so but but it was but it shows some of that departure from the traditional telecom being kind of a a, a utility um into into what is essentially um what's meant to be a sort of privately owned network of networks but now is a privately owned network of just a very few networks um that that kind of consolidation really you know goes all the way up and down the stack right right down to the international telecommunications cables that are now more and more owned by by google and facebook Okay, so let's fast forward. <clears throat> you know, we, we've we've kind of bounced back and forth, so we didn't we didn't we haven't been living in 2012 or 2013, but we've we've talked some about the past. So let's let's kind of bring it to today. You know, if you if you could write an updated version of Tubes, you know, circa 2022, what are some of the things you'd maybe like to you know you'd like to revisit? Um, well, I think I think that I mean one of the <clears throat> things. And actually, I'm 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 writing something now that's going to be out hopefully pretty soon that that reflects on this. Um, but I think one of the the biggest things had really has been um, the extent to which uh, Google, Facebook, Microsoft have 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 taken over the infrastructure of the internet itself, um, you know the and and that's apparent not only in data centers and in their the 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 robustness of their of their national fiber networks, um, but uh, it's astonished me to see um, both Google and Facebook spend as much money as they have. Small change for them um, because they both have so much money. Um, but on international submarine cables. Um, so, so you have an incredible building program on Google's part um, to lay sort of you know, massive capacity cables across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. Both Google and Facebook have you know, enormous cable systems to Africa now and, and, uh, and to Asia um, in, in construction or in planning. And because the undersea cables last 20 years, um, what, it, what it means quite clearly is that the international infrastructure of the internet um, will be owned um, by Google and Facebook for the kind of foreseeable future, all the way up and down the stack. So not not just about you know you're using Google services, but they actually own the cable in the water, um, or own a significant portion of the cable in the water, and um, and that was uh, that was unfathomable um, 12 years ago. Um, you know it was unfathomable because you had content providers and you had telecoms, and now we don't really have telecoms anymore. Um, you know right. we, we you know is, is Zoom a telecom? You know like we don't we don't really. Uh, it doesn't doesn't quite exist that way, and so you have this kind of reversal of the ownership structure of the physical infrastructure of the internet, where it used to be telecoms um, selling capacity to content providers. Now, so now you have content providers cutting off the last little sliver of their of their capacity for for the for telecoms, um, and what that means um, for uh, what what that potentially means for control is kind of you know you know you know TBD, um, but forget you know Facebook. Controlling the news stream, um, you know, you have a you know complete ownership of our communication networks um, that goes kind of unremarked upon. Um, whether or not Facebook's ownership of those communications networks is better than um, Chinese-owned uh, cables is a kind of active discussion now, particularly in places sure. like Africa where that competition is very direct. Um, but uh, but it's pretty astounding. I I could not. I would have been shocked. You know, twelve years ago, if he said this was going to happen. So yeah. Yeah, I don't know that anybody necessarily foresaw that, right? I mean, it was more, uh, I mean, even the early discussions around net neutrality or other things presupposed, right, a, a division of ownership between sort of the telco side and the content side, right? I mean, in, in that sense, because um, it, it was then about, well, how do we prioritize or should we prior, you know, should we prioritize? It was more about, well, if someone can pay more, then can they get, you know, it's like Disney Fast Pass was always sort of the description in my mind that uh, you know when I initially sort of conceived of the net neutrality argument, right? It's they, they you know is this going to be a Disney Fast Pass model where you pay more and you get you know preferential treatment? Um, 
in, 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 in this sense, it's, well, we'll just lay our own lines. Right. And then we don't have to, we don't have to deal with, we don't, no one can decide what, uh, you know, there, there will, there will be no governance around what happens through that particular cable, right? It's private point to point networking, uh, all over the globe, which is sort of hard to imagine, right? This is not, a, that's an incredibly expensive proposition. Uh, it's an expensive proposition unless you, you mint money with your advertising, but yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which is one of the greatest businesses that ever, you know, uh, when I went to business school, my, 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 one of my favorite, uh, case studies early on, this, this guy said, you know, the best business in the world is a post office box where people send cashier's checks and everything else is a step down from there. Uh, and internet advertising is not too far off from there. Right? It's a really has, has great economics <laughs> if you can get the scale. You know, and credit where credits do. I mean, it's, it's, it's led to enormous productivity. You know, it just, it's, it's, they're amazing businesses that create incredible value. Um, uh, but there obviously are other consequences, um, that we're still fully exploring. Sure. Which we haven't figured out yet. And I'm not a, I'm not a, I mean, you may be more skeptical than me about the future. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm much, you know, I'm very comfortable saying I don't know. And neither does anybody else. Right. We better be wrestling with it though. And figuring it out. I think that's a, I think that's a fair, uh, a, a fair characterization, regardless of where you sit, uh, in terms of the punditry side of the equation. So, um, Oh, no. I would say the coda, the coda to this idea of Facebook building cables. I mean, that they're the one of the biggest projects is to Africa cable that essentially is going to dominate African telecommunications for the next twenty years. Um, that said, when I first heard about it, I was like, "Oh my God, Facebook's going to Facebook is going to sort of own the connection to a continent for a generation." Um, you know, you know two, two billion people. But the um, but what I hadn't appreciated is the is the the plausibility that Facebook would no longer exist in its current form. <laughs> you know, I, I, I had. I hadn't registered that they might build this cable and then and then somehow be broken up in some way. But um, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. There's a you know, at the end of the day, there's still uh, there's a lot of dynamism all around in both the uh, the, the marketplace and the and uh, the in the public policy arena. So it, it will be interesting to see sort of how it shakes out. I'm, I'm thinking they didn't lay that. They didn't make that investment thinking they were going to get broken up either. So uh, <laughs> it's not something they're going to take easily. That's for sure. And what used to be a bankrupting event in the original broadband boom around 2000 is now a kind of, you know, a, a fraction of Facebook's, you know, uh, CapEx for the year, you know, just kind sure. of a, barely, barely registers. Yeah. A couple hundred million dollars. But It's funny. This makes me think of this next question that I had written down, I think sort of, uh, you know, folds into this fairly nicely. So when you wrote tubes, there were, you know, roughly 2 billion internet users. I think that was the number you quoted in the book. And I looked it up for 2021 and I, I found various estimates, but, Pushing five billion um, was what I found most recently, with and with mobile devices driving most of that growth. Right, that's probably the biggest step change from where we were in you know 2010 to 2012 when you were writing the book. It's still mostly computers connecting to the internet um, over a line. Right, maybe some Wi-Fi, but mostly over a line. Um, you know, what implications do you think that has? That sort of you know really exponential growth. I mean, we're talking about that's a lot of that's a lot more people onto these you know onto this network of networks. Um, what do you think? It, what are the implications from your perspective on the physicality of the internet? I mean, what the physical infrastructure can it continue to do the job based on what you know about it and the and the research you did? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the the astonishing sort of miracle of fiber optic technology means that you know it keeps you know if, if you've got if you can lay that glass tube between two places, you know, we keep increasing our technological capability to light it up with kind of ever increasing amounts of bandwidth. Um, I mean, I used to, you know, I, it, there was certainly a moment, I mean, just speaking as kind of a U.S. consumer, you know, there was certainly a moment where the network was not keeping up with my demands. 
um, you know, I, you know, Saturday night, Netflix would stutter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to perhaps, I mean, to the kind of broadband providers credit, to the cellular providers credit, um, you know, those, those, you know, often, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's more common to kind of feel like you have the bandwidth you need. I know that might not, might not have been everybody's experience, I mean, certainly, you know, during the pandemic in particular. Um, but that said, I, I, I have been a little surprised by the way in which, you know, if you've got a 200 or 300 meg connection at home, or even if you have a gig connection at home, uh, you're not really asking for much more these days. So I don't know, maybe, maybe if you, you know, big gamers or something like that, but. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you've got edge cases, but outside of that, the average person's broadband needs. I mean, I have a hundred meg connection at home. I work from home. We watch, we, we have, you know, we cut the cord, we have voice over IP phone, we have TV on the internet, you know, we've got multiple devices going in the house at various times and it's all running on, on Wi-Fi that then, that then is hitting the hundred, the hundred meg pipe. And, you know, and that's, and that's, I say hundred meg, it's not hundred meg de- dedicated, right? It's, it's broadband. So it's, it's never, it's never hundred meg actually. It's more usually. That was my pandemic tip when people said, you know, people said, they're, oh, we're, we're, none of our Zooms are working. And I was like, well, it's not, it's not your connection. It's your, you know, it's your router, you know, get, right. <laughs> get a right. smarter router. Yeah. I mean, I have friends, I have friends who, you know, they bought, they, when, when Google fiber came to town, they started, you know, uh, turning up one gig, you know, fiber connections is like, you better get new Wi-Fi routers because your Wi-Fi router can't accommodate that speed anyway. You're you're wasting it if you don't if you don't buy a route a Wi-Fi router that's that's got enough capability to stream that over the air because most of the you know the traditional route, Wi-Fi router couldn't even handle that. It was beyond beyond its capacity. So uh, it, it brings me to yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say no. And I think you know, but obviously, but in the current current kind of infrastructure spending, there's a lot of a lot of big broadband push. I mean, there's still there's still places with that need more broadband. You know, both around the country and and, and certainly internationally. Um, but in terms of the ability of our existing hardware and existing technologies to keep up with that, um, that I don't worry about at all. Um, on the contrary, you know, in some ways it's it's kind of you know, it it's become there's this weird economic dynamic as we talked so much about. But where the you know, the Googles and Facebooks, you know, are it's there's the getting the getting the infrastructure built is is a is a reasonable cost to take on if it means more eyeballs for their ads. Um, and that that you know that's a wild dynamic, and that's playing out more globally than than kind of in local broadband. But uh, but um, but that that to me indicates a, a kind of um, a saturation um, in a in a positive way. So yeah, sort of a strange version of Moore's law. I mean, that the cost of the infrastructure is not necessarily going down for installation, but relative to the revenues, right? It's it, it's it's worth it to you know to add the capacity um, at what would be I'll call it a fixed cost, right? I mean, laying an undersea cable. Maybe it's a little cheaper. Maybe it's a little more expensive than it was 20 years ago. But fundamentally, it's not a ton different, right? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a tube with fiber optic cables through it, right? You know, at the end of the day, it hasn't changed that much. They got to drag it across and do their thing. That it's sort of amazing to think we figured out how to do that, you know, over 100 years ago, which is, you know, sort of mind blowing in, in a lot of ways. Um, we talked a little bit about mobile, uh, and we think about mobile and and 5G and 6G, whatever maybe next, quantum computing, other things like that. Yeah, not to ask you to play futurist, but as you think about that, do you see any of that sort of freeing the internet from its tubes or making it less dependent on the tubes? I mean, at this point, I don't see it. There's nothing to your point. I think there's no, there's certainly no economic imperative to do so. But just curious if you're seeing anything or have, have been exposed to anything that maybe that maybe speaks to that. No, I mean, I see. I'm, I'm actually I'm much more focused on energy networks now than, than data networks. I mean, I think that's that's a really though that that's a real sticky problem and. And a kind of problem is going to be very interesting to see solved in different ways over the next, you know, you know, 
three, five, 10, 20 years, whatever, however long it takes. Um, but the data networks, I mean, you know, it's, you know, I, I think, um, you know, 5G is kind of done what it said it was going to do. You know, I, I sometimes have to remember to check that I'm on Wi-Fi, not on cellular. You know, I'm often the cell phone network is faster than the Wi-Fi network. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and then a lot of the discussion as well about, you know, some of what um, people have sort of come down to earth about the things, the other things 5G will do with autonomous driving or stuff like that. I'm hearing a lot less chatter about that. Um, it's the sort of recognition that, you know, that more things are going to have to happen on on devices, um, and then also that the the energy issue, the sort of networked energy issue of how we're going to manage a grid um, that is essentially pumps through three times as much electricity because we've electrified all of our home infrastructure and we're charging our car at home, um, which is going to seems like it's coming a lot faster than 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 people predicted even six months ago. Um, uh, then you know that that's a that is a remarkable sort of fascinating kind of software problem, um, and you know and and uh, uh, you know and, and we need new new energy infrastructure, but the kind of data dynamics of that are seem pretty straightforward. So the the data transmission dynamics of that seem pretty straightforward. So, so to we'll kind of wrap up on tubes and then and kind of kind of end with some discussions around some of the work you're working on now but you know not to be dramatic but but in many ways is you know tubes kind of changed my life i was an accidental ce a cio uh, i did i was not a i did not have a background in in sort of traditional technology and kind of got thrust into this role for a variety of reasons um and and really felt like the book gave me a concrete understanding at, at, again at, at, a, at a very root physical level of sort of how all this stuff fit together and it helped I think me map mentally onto the work that the network engineers that were on our team and you know the folks that were working with us as we tried to rebuild this very very small piece of the internet that was related to what our company was doing at the time um, but I think for most people it's still you know the, the idea of the internet and, and having sort of a concrete understanding of that is very very unusual I think it's incredibly abstract to most people so I'm just curious like when you're after writing the book how, how did it did it did it change your life in any way, either in terms of the way you thought about things or sort of the conversations you had that maybe informed way, the way you looked at some of these other systems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, Tube changed my life because it was, uh, you know, I mean, you almost think about like an entrepreneur. I mean, I had this idea that, you know, that that was that was kind of a little bit ahead of its time and was able to kind of bring it to, you know, bring you get the book out before anyone else did. And no one's redone it, which I'm which I'm proud of. No one no one's kind of rewritten it yet. It's a little out of date now, but no, no one no one has kind of done it again in the same way. Um, and certainly a lot of the themes are, are so vital now, as we talked about. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, they, it, you know, in, in terms of um, the abstraction of it, I mean, it really, I mean, my, you know, I tease, I, I, I keep, my, my kids are uh, nine and 12, and I keep trying to get them to, my 12-year-old to read it. Um, you know, it hasn't quite happened yet, you know, I, um, but they, uh, every once in a while, I get a, I get a, a message from a friend who's, you know, middle schooler, you know, watch the, the, the TED Talk version of the book, uh, you know, to sort of yep. understand what the internet really is. Um, so that, you know, that, 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 that part's certainly been fun. Um, but in terms of thinking about, you know, how I actually conceive of the network, I mean, it, it really is, it, it's, the, what's been most remarkable is the kind of the, the recognition of how important the ownership of these pieces is. Um, and that's, you know, we see that, we've seen just, just the consequences of that. We, we have just keep getting you know, bigger and bigger. Um, you know, certainly in the political discussion, uh, both the 2016 election and 2020, you know that the impact um, of 
the the sort of ownership of of singular means of communication um, uh, have have been uh, you know was was really dramatic, and the recognition that it's not just about a TV station or something like that, but really about the kind of the infrastructure of our entire basis of our entire communications um, has 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 hit home. It's not as if it's not as if people aren't talking about it. I mean, very much right. a part of the conversation. So yeah. Um. So. We'll close the book on that book uh, and then, you know, tell us a little bit. I know you've got another book that came out, I think, fairly recently, a book about about weather. So tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, uh, The Weather Machine came out um, just before the pandemic, 2019, got it out before, uh, you know, when, when there's, you could still have a, still have a, you know, reading and, and things like exactly. that. Exactly. People still want to see people and talk about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and that was about the, the similar theme. The, it was about the physical infrastructure of the weather forecast. Um, and what that meant was really to recognize how um, the weather models that are basically the basis of, of weather forecasts today um, are, you know, make up a sort of digital twin, a kind of model of the Earth's atmosphere um, that's informed by this very physical network of, of sensors and satellites. Um, and so the, what was interesting to me was that while the Internet was kind of, uh, you, you know, as we, as we talked about, has increasingly become kind of top down and consolidated, um, the 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 weather network is is kind of has these two weird poles where you both need readings from every country on earth as much as possible as so you need this kind of diplomacy of 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 of, of meteorology offices from around the globe to, to share their information um, but then you also have this consolidation of only a few sort of supercomputer weather models that so much of our forecast depends on um, so i was kind of in for a ride with that one because i you know, both had to kind of take in this sort of global view, but also understand the kind of supercomputers at the center. Um, and, um, you know, and that, um, that, 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 that was, that ended up being a, a much more, less a story about the sort of, um, the sort of growing power of a couple of the kind of giants, um, and more a story about the necessity um, of the sort of, of government cooperation. Um, and now, the last couple of years since the book has come out, it's been a really interesting to see that sort of private satellite companies kind of begin to mature and the way in which they are um, they are collaborating with um, with government more than I might have expected um, two years ago, um, because so much of the basis of this technology has come from sort of, uh, you know, really a kind of Kennedy JFK era um, emphasis um, on on global diplomatic technical systems. Um, the World Meteorological Organization, which is the kind of basis, you know, basic, the UN organization that's the, that organizes the exchange of weather data um, is like straight line from that to the app on your phone. Like, you know, no doubt about it, so. Wow, wow, yeah, um, I haven't read it, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick it up and give it a read because um, I've really appreciated the way you treated the system that is the internet. So I would, I would suggest, or at least, uh, use that this is another one. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm sensing a theme. So as we think about projects, you mentioned a couple of things that you're, you're working on, um, uh, nuclear power, uh, thinking about maybe the energy grid. What, what are some projects that are on the, that are, that are in the hopper for you that you're thinking about that we might be able to look forward to? Yeah. I mean, I have been, I, a lot of the, the work I've been doing magazine work, I haven't quite made the leap to another book yet with this. So thinking about it, um, but it has been about sort of climate tech. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the kind of shift from energy is like a kind of business story um, to sort of innovative uh, energy creating technologies as a kind of you know, startup story um, and to see them kind of converge uh, under this kind of label of climate tech and this recognition that um, uh, that there's a huge you know huge amount of money to be made um, and, and huge amount of impact to be had um, in, a, in in sort of re, remaking our electric grid 
um, and um, you know, talk about a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending. Um, you know, the the again, I you know the the kind of snap forward of the response to electric vehicles. I think is really wild. You, know, you see, you know, Ford announced this week that they're accelerating their their shift, and not just you know all electric by 2030, but or 2040 or whatever it is, but but really speeding that up. Um, and uh, you know, and similar to the story with Facebook and Google, perhaps you know, it's like you know, give Americans stuff to buy and, you know, we'll buy it, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and that, uh, that seems to be, um, that seems to be the formula right now um, that's really shifting the conversation around, around energy and around climate. Um, I mean, just remarkable news every single day, you know, with the, you know, essentially a reinvention of American manufacturing with electric vehicles, you know, new battery plant announcements, you know, every single day this week um, in Georgia and Tennessee, um, you know, in Arkansas, all over the place, so. Yeah, I'm curious to see what are the, you know, I'm, as a libertarian, obviously I'm skeptical of, of centralized planning. Um, and, and I wonder about the second order, the unintended consequences of, of a shift in this direction. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, I, I think when, obviously when, um, you know, when gas powered, you know, when the, com- the combustion engine was created and it, and it, and it began to be commercialized, I'm not sure how many people thought about the downstream problems that that would yield. Um, Maybe some did, but but you know, oftentimes if there's money to be made, there those those uh, those potential problems will either be overlooked um, through optimism or hidden. I mean, if you're more of a skeptical person, it could be hidden. Mostly, I think it's overlooked. People don't. It's hard to. They're called unintended consequences for a reason because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Uh, so I am curious to see sort of how that evolves. I mean, the grid is a problem, obviously that's that's pretty well known. Um, you know, mainly through news media, you know, you have situations like that, what happened in Texas that seemed to, you know, that seemed to indicate a problem with the grid um, and, and sort of a meeting of the, a meeting of a strange climate event at the same time, sort of, I think, pointed to two different potential issues, you know, sort of meeting in the middle, if you will. But um, I am curious, I mean, what, in, in terms of what you've read and you thought about what are some of the, maybe some of the downstream or some of the, maybe the more negative things that people, some of the skeptics of, of sort of the, you know, the electrification of, of the automobile, um, what, what are some of those problems that people are thinking about? Um, uh, of the, um, well, I think it's, I mean, the, I mean, for, I think that, I mean, the biggest things really does seem to be, you know, the fact, you know, can we, can we build up a charging network, right? Um, and that's, you know, the, and, and not only just put chargers on the side of the roads, but also build the power network to serve them. Um, there was just an announcement yesterday from a consortium of, of electric utility companies uh, that they're going to put, I forget what the number was, um, I, I, have, I just, I literally just was just sharing this with a friend, um, but essentially by the end of 2023, you're going to have a robust interstate charging network, end of 2023. So we're talking, you know, 18 months. Uh, 18 months, yeah. 18 months to um, to have a, a transformation of, of, you know, to have you know, chargers at every at every rest stop in the country. Um, and that's, you know, this is a problem. Uh, this is, you know, this, this, the, the reason for that, um, you know, yeah, certainly the, a lot of the federal spending is, spending is sort of juicing that along. Um, but it's also the pre-orders for the F-150 Lightning um, and the sort of pretty obvious sense that, uh, that the writing is on the wall in terms of a market demand um, for right. this kind of charging. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get into the gas station business right now. Um, that seems like a, it seems like a pretty bad bet. Um, and, um, you know, and, and there is, um, you know, I think there is a kind of breaking of the dam in terms of, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, 
fixed idea that um, you know that 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 internal combustion engines are are, are a superior technology. Um, uh, where um, you know where where uh, you know I just yeah it's just a re- remarkable turnaround. Um, and 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 in a, in a very short period of time, really, right? I mean, it's pretty incredible. And just purely, just you know, don't don't bet against the American consumer. You know, it's like give us give us a cool pickup truck. When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping, right? I mean, we like we like new stuff. Um, and and as soon as you know, and yeah. So and and if you know if you've and and don't bet against the market's ability to 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 supply those chargers very very quickly. Right. Yeah. Although it's interesting, will it create? I mean, you you know, sort of. A, I feel like there's this these sort of threads all coming together for you. But in terms of the power generation required to support those charging stations, right? Will it Will it at least initially require uh, a heavier load on fossil fuels uh, in in the short term? I mean, it feels like it could possibly. I, I there's a lot of stuff happening pretty quietly. What did I just um, Amazon announced? Um, I forget again. I'm I, sorry. I should have these numbers on my fingertips, but uh, something like uh, three thousand or four three thousand or five thousand megawatts of of renewable power procurement over the next two years. Um, so this is you know nuclear power. That's fast. Again, fast. Yeah. yeah, nuclear power plant is a couple thousand. You know, the, the state of New, I was just looking at these numbers for a nuclear article. The, the state of New Jersey is something somewhere on the order of, uh, I think around six thousand megawatts is powers New Jersey, right? Um, Amazon's doing four thousand in two years. All right, they're going to take a state <laughs> of, all, of all renewable, of all renewable. Um, right. And so that you know, and, and and to get you know, if you want to build renewable power, all you got to do is is you know build solar panels and wind power. You know, it's, it's, and so you're you're cranking out these machines, um, and then you're, you don't have the re- you have a you have a manufacturing economy rather than a resource economy, um, yeah. and um, and that's a that it just the the way in which it's occurring to people that this might be a positive. Um, uh, you know, if you've got a you know big battery factory in Georgia, um, it's gonna it's gonna scramble a lot of things. It's gonna it's gonna everyone's in a bit of a ride with that. Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked a lot. I want to, I want to get, let you get back to it. Um, and, you know, just to kind of wrap, is there anything you know, we've talked obviously about some larger systems and some bigger sort of issues around, around technology, but kind of coming down, you know, it's, it's holiday season. We've talked some about shopping. Um, you know, what, what interesting, you know, what do you want, what are you seeing interesting that's going on tech wise or that you're following or paying attention to kind of more of at a, at a lower level? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I have a be in my bond with a lot of this electrification stuff because I hadn't realized, you know, one thing that really didn't click to me was that you can't have a conversation about, you, you can't talk about, you know, climate goals of decarbonizing the grid without recognizing that we need to triple the amount of electricity we produce because we're going to also electrify our home heating and we're also going to electrify our automobiles right. like that. So, so the triple thing. Um, I mean, I, I, that's, that's really, um, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I'm focused on, but it's, but it does, it, I, I guess I, I guess I point to this concept, this personal infrastructure concept. I don't know if you thought, if you thought about that at all, you know, that. No, tell me about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really about you know, your personal infrastructure is your hot water heater and your, your air conditioner and your broadband router. And that's kind of all the, all the things in your home that kind of make up your infrastructure. But, but the, gotcha. the, the trick in that, uh, and the thing that I find so fascinating is that, you know, infrastructure is, is kind of public infrastructure shared, you know, you don't really have personal infrastructure. Infrastructure is always right. about, it is always about a kind of society or sort of system wide level. So there's a bit of a contradiction to say personal infrastructure, but what it indicates is that is the, the, the possibility that you have these sort of individual systems, you know, solar panels on your roof, but they also have to join together. 
Um, and so you have, you have so this the idea, just the example, these sort of virtual power plants. And if you have an entire community with solar panels on their roof, and you can dispatch that excess power using software in different ways, then you don't. Then you have a virtual power plant. You, you can. It's not. You know. It's not a, a single sort of sort of single sort of uh, smoking building. You know. You know. Down down behind the dump, um, but it becomes a kind of software dispatch thing. Um, and so that kind of that sort of that sort of the we've kind of set the stage for that uh, with our data networks. We set the stage for that with our individual devices, our our data devices that we're that we are now kind of live with. Uh, but it's gonna be interesting to see how that kind of distributed and individual device idea begins to translate um, to our own oil refineries, i.e., you know, the solar on the roof that charges the the one fifty, you know, the F one fifty lightning. You know, I mean, the, the right. Instead of just taking that excess, you know, insure that excess energy and maybe getting a credit back from your your power company, sort of taking that to its logical its logical conclusion, right, and being able to become it's it becomes a, a resource that. Is, is really can be managed in a, in a much more sophisticated way because it's so because it's it's constant and consistent right it would be something you could do yeah i mean i mean right and it kind of you know there's there's nothing there's there's you know there's yeah i mean it's just there's a you know again it's going to scramble so many things but you know there's nothing free about being reliant on a fossil fuel company right <laughs> it's like you know, it's you know it's, it's gonna that that's that's gonna that that's gonna it's gonna scramble the way that we think about a lot of these systems now um, which is pretty exciting because yeah. there there are some uh, intended and unintended consequences of 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 that infrastructural shift that I think will be will be pretty interesting. So, well, on that note, we will uh we'll we'll let you get back to the writing desk, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today on Cut the Shit. We really appreciate it. All right, I hope you did. Okay, good. Yeah, take care. Happy holidays. You too. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a reminder, we're taking a break for the holidays, so our next episode won't drop until January 18th, 2022. If you can't wait until then, drop us a line and maybe we'll make a little cameo-style recording for you. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd be most grateful if you would share it with others who you think might be interested in hearing an irreverent take on the arcane world of IT. You can find links to this podcast on our website at plow.net, on our YouTube and Instagram feeds, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, LinkedIn, and probably a bunch of other places too. Or as my kids like to say, just Google that shit. You'll find it for sure. Take care and have a great day.